The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, my name is Richard. I'm the church planning resident here, um, and I'm going to be teaching us this morning from the book of Philippians. So if you can go ahead and, and make your way there, it'll be in Philippians chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's usually one under a seat nearby. So it'll be Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I'll go ahead and read those for us. Paul says this, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer for of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, your, your self-revelation to us that we might better know you um, and better know what you've called us to and how you've called us to live, that we might see the gospel clearly, that we might see Christ clearly and that we might live our lives in light of who he is and what he has done for us. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us be open to the truth of your word, and that you would help us be moved to live in a way that brings your name glory above all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's no surprise to us how many stories there are of people in the, who have been wounded by the church. We know this happens. We know local churches are made up of sinners like you and me. And so at times we, we offend people. At times we, we upset people. And when I was thinking about this, thinking about the, the way this, this, this happens in local churches, I was reminded of a story that I was told by, by one of my seminary professors. He told this story about how before he was a professor, when he was a member of a church, uh, he had, had seen what was really just a sad display of church discipline. It really was. He told me about this young woman who had become pregnant and she wasn't yet married. But he said, rather than show her any kind of love, any kind of prayer, or any kind of support, the reaction of many and most in the congregation was to immediately huddle up into their groups of friends, into their cliques, and start gossiping about her. Start talking about her and start talking about her sin. You see, she actually even gets to the point where she repents, and she even does so publicly before the church. But the point of the story and what my professor was emphasizing is that no one ever confronted those doing the gossiping. No one ever spoke to their lack of love. No one ever thought to address their attitudes and their hearts towards a fellow sister in Christ. And you see, when many people, because of things like this, we we know that things like this happen, many people, when they think of the church, I would hazard a guess that love and joy aren't always the first characteristics they associate with us. What a shame that is. Now, certainly not everyone who thinks that is right, but but many are. And it's usually when a church has lost hold of the truth of the gospel. 
In fact, if we're honest, then we know that sometimes our thoughts about church are negative. Sometimes our thoughts about the people in the church are negative too. And that's because a lot of times we only see the sin in someone else's life rather than the sin in our own life. We've gotten used to our sin. So it's somebody else's that usually grates against us. And you know the feelings when you're thinking, man, that, that person just, he just really annoys me. Or that unwanted advice that you just keep getting. Or he doesn't preach like I like it. Or this church is just so needy. There's lots of emotions and feelings and sinful attitudes that, that build up within us. And if unchecked, we can have a lot of those sinful attitudes towards each other. But the truth is, there is a myriad of things that threaten to rob us of our right attitudes towards each other. That's why I find this passage so, so helpful and so encouraging and so convicting. I mean, it is a wonderful example of the exact opposite of the reactions and associations that we usually see tied to church relationships. In this passage, Paul just displays with an unflinching clarity the presence that should, or the attitudes that should be present in a fellowship of Christians. It's only the introduction to his letter, but it is still full of gospel truth. It's an example of what gospel-focused Christian relationships can look like. And something you notice, maybe as you read this or um, as you read this, that Paul throughout this section is just full of passion. And it might seem like an odd idea. We don't always think of, of the passion of our biblical authors. But when I was reading this passage, the thing that stuck out to me was how emotive Paul is. I mean, look again at some of the things that he says. Verse 3, he's, he's thanking God because he's remembering them. In verse 4, he's full of joy. In verse 7, he's talking about his, his feelings and how he's, he, has, he holds these people in his heart and he's yearning for them with affection and he loves them and he wants them to love. You can see Paul's passion in his feelings in this passage. And unlike what we might experience today, this is how Christians ought to feel about one another. We are to be passionate about each other. Sometimes the church is just a cold environment, and much to our shame, many of the times that a church that are, that are so focused on theology becomes the ones that are so, so cold and so un, unmoved by their affections. It shouldn't be the case. And though there might be those who are, who are so focused on their emotions, they do very little thinking. I don't think that's the point that Paul wants to make here. There's something profound that we learn from this passage. See, we must not be allowed to believe that a focus on facts allows us to ignore and pay no attention to our affections and our emotions. Let's not be ashamed of our affection for one another. And you only have to read the introduction to his letter to see that in Paul. And this is the same, this follows the same pattern as many of Paul's Thanksgiving introductions. But here, what's unique is that he's accumulating this sentence after sentence designed to communicate the intensity of his feelings for these people. And so from Paul, what I want us to see is the, what is the loving fruit of fellowship with one another? What is the fruit of fellowship, of our union together? I think we can draw this out in three ways. Three ways that we are to think and treat one another in Christ. And the first, the first fruit of fellowship that we see from Paul is that we are to be joyfully thankful for one another. You see this really in verses three through six, though the, though the whole passage is just overflowing with the warmth of Paul's thanksgiving. It's, it's really clear in these verses. It just highlights his attitude. You see in verse three, he talks about thanking God in all of his remembrance of the Philippians and always in every prayer of his. He's thanking God and he's praying with joy, it says. 
Now, Paul, of course, when he says always in every prayer, it doesn't mean he's always praying, but it means that in his regular prayers, every time he prays, the Philippians come up. Paul can't think of the church at Philippi and the people there without joy and thankfulness. What a wonderful thing this would have been for Paul. This freedom to express his gratitude for these people in Christ. You only need to think of, of maybe his letter to the Corinthians or his letter to the Galatians to think what it looks like for Paul's words to be used up with correctives and admonishments. But not here. Not to the Philippians. To the Philippians, he can elaborate on the joyful thankfulness that ought to be a defining attitude for all of us in Christ, towards all of us in Christ. And he refers to them like this throughout the letter. He's talking about his joy for them. You just look a couple pages forward in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this about the Philippians. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What emotional language. The Philippians are Paul's crowning joy. This is similar to what a, you know, a parent might say about their kids when they say this is my pride and joy. When they mean it's something to be proud of. Something to, to boast about in the good way. Something to be thankful for. This is how Paul feels about the Philippians. In fact, in this letter, this is just the first of, of almost 14 times where Paul mentions joy in relation to how we feel about other Christians. This book's only four chapters long. He keeps talking about it because he's overflowing with it. And so rather than dwelling on each other's faults, the gospel moves us instead to find joy in our common union in Christ. And this is a supernatural emotion. Sustained joy is not something we just conjure up within us, but it's rather a work of the Spirit in our lives. In fact, joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the gospel. When we are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, joy becomes one of our primary characteristics. Scripture tells us this over and over in Galatians and Romans when it's giving us these lists of the fruits of the Spirit. Joy is always primary. Joy is a primary fruit of the Spirit, something the Spirit is working in us. So thankful joyfulness and joyful thankfulness in our brothers and sisters in faith is a gospel truth. We here at Redeemer actually were able to witness this firsthand just recently at our Thanksgiving service. You know, when, when we had the, the public mic time, people were invited to come up in front of us all and express what they're thankful for. And it was, it, I mean, I don't know about you guys who saw it, but it was such a blessing to see the, the genuine gratitude from people regarding their church. For some, they were thankful for the church as a whole. For some, it was particular people in the church. For some, it was their small group. But they were thankful. And you, you can't deny the, the joy that was welling up within them. But some of them were in tears as they talked about how thankful they were for their, their church family, their fellowship of believers that they're a part of. It's amazing. And that's what it means to be in fellowship with other believers. It means that we are joyfully thankful for each other. And Paul reminds us why. He wants us to, to be joyful and to be thankful, but he also wants to see what produces this joyful thankfulness for each other so that we know where it comes from. He says this in verses 5 through 6. He's saying, I'm full of joy and thanksgiving towards you. Why? Because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, their continual, faithful, persistent partnership, 
that he is overwhelmed by them. And look at that in verse 5. Look at that word partnership. This is the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It's fellowship that Paul is pointing to as the source of our joy and thankfulness for each other. And fellowship is not just, just a nice conversation with other Christians. You know, sometimes we water down this word fellowship. And that's, that's part of the reason why it's translated partnership here, to help us understand what, what Paul's getting at. But we water it down to make it about a nice conversation or a meal in a hall named in its behalf. But that's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is a deep participation together. It is a lasting and tightly connected partnership in a common cause, the cause of Christ. And for Paul, he identifies that glue that holds our fellowship together, that glue that holds our partnership together as the gospel. They're partners in the gospel. That's why they're thankful for each other. That's why they're full of joy. The truth is that the sinless Jesus dying in our place and raising from the dead is the rock-solid foundation of our fellowship and our lives as Christians. It's the truth upon which we base our lives. It is the goal and objective of our lives. And it is so important that it unites us together in such close harmony that we can't help but thank God for each other with an abounding joy. That's not it. That's not all Paul says here. There's more to this this thankfulness that we have for each other. It's not just our gospel fellowship, this fellowship we have rooted in the gospel, but it's that, and look at verse 6, and it's a confidence Paul has, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is though he is telling us that we have every reason to be joyful about each other in the Christian faith, every reason to be joyful about our fellowship with one another, and it's not our feelings that becomes the support, but it's because it is a work of God himself, and our feelings are an overflow of that. It is God who began the good work, and it is God who will bring it to completion. Paul is saying that what God begins, God completes. God is the root of our fellowship with one another, and our emotions of joy actually spring from that truth. And the good work, in verse 6, that God is completing is exactly what Paul's been mentioning and been talking about. It is our salvation and sanctification, and thus our fellowship in the gospel. So joy and thankfulness come from a fellowship in the gospel that is a work of God himself. And this is true for anyone Anyone who puts their faith in the finished work of Christ will receive the free offer of salvation and forgiveness. You freely become a part of the good work of God and a partnership and a fellowship of the gospel because of what Christ has done. See, Paul's confidence in those saved by the gospel and working with him in the sharing of the gospel is that they will continue to do so. That's why in verse 6 he says that God will bring this to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not because of how strong they are or how faithful we are to make this happen, but it's because God has begun to work in them and God has a long-term plan. He is getting us ready to share in the glory of his son. And Paul knows that. Paul's confident in that. And Paul is joyful and thankful because of that. So Paul's joyful thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel is based on his conviction that this partnership is God's work. And what we see then for each other 
and how we are to relate to one another is that it starts with understanding that we are in a deep fellowship with one another. It's a fellowship that's not surface level, centered around good times, though there may be those, and it's not centered around Sunday mornings, though we are here. Rather, our fellowship is a deep union with each other, centered around the good work of the gospel in our lives. We are free from thinking negatively about each other. We are bound together by the impenetrable work of God to each other in Christ. It's our union in Christ, our fellowship that produces a great thankfulness for each other and an overwhelming joy knowing that together we are working for the cause of the gospel and the power of the gospel with the hope of the gospel. So let's remember to be joyfully thankful for each other, remembering that we have a God-worked fellowship with one another in Christ. We are partners in the cause of Christ because of Christ. Because none of us gets ourselves here. We are, we are a work of God, which means we are a product of grace, not something that we have worked to attain. See, recognizing the work of grace in your own life leads you to be far more understanding for the need of grace in the lives of others. It helps you to be thankful for others, to be joyful for others, and to understand others. It helps lead us to the kind of fellowship that Paul enjoys here. What a remarkable thing our fellowship is. You know, Paul actually continues talking about this and continues just gushing over the Philippians and their fellowship together. Because it doesn't only, this fellowship, it doesn't only produce joyful thankfulness, though it does that. It also penetrates our hearts and gives us a deep affection for one another. And so the second fruit of fellowship I want us to see here is that we are to be deeply affectionate towards one another. You see this in verses 7 and 8. Let me read this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. First thing you notice here is that Paul in verse 7 is defending himself. He says, it's right for me to feel this way. When he says this, he doesn't mean the feelings of joy and thankfulness he's just expressed, but he means the feelings of love and affection he's about to proclaim. So he's justified in his feelings. That's what he's telling us. Now, I mentioned this earlier about, you know, affections in the church and how at times it can be difficult, um, hard for us to get in touch with our feelings. At least this, this could be true of me and maybe the men of the church. We, oftentimes, I know I'm, I'm speaking to myself. I was going to say preaching to the choir, but I don't... Preaching to myself is what I mean. You see, instead of, instead of opening up and being as emotional with people as you can and being as, as vulnerable with people as you can, usually we fall back on sarcasm, at least for myself. It's just, let's just be sarcastic, and that way we don't ever have to be real. The problem is that that helps us to avoid or that causes us to avoid any real vulnerability with each other. And sometimes it hinders real fellowship with each other. But Paul wasn't this way. You see, Paul never had a problem showing his love and affection for those to whom he enjoyed Christian fellowship. And that's because Paul wasn't just an academic, though he was that. He was that. But he was someone who passionately loved Christ, which means he passionately loved Christ's people. And look at his reasoning for this confidence that he has. 
He says, I am right in feeling this way because I hold you in my heart. See, when biblical authors use this word heart, they literally mean the center and the source of who we are. Our most inward thoughts and affections and emotions and volitions. It's why Paul demonstrates this numerous times when he's talking to people whom he's writing letters to. I want to show you a couple of examples. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he's reminding the Thessalonians of what it was like when he was with them, he says this in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's Paul saying that. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. One commentator, he, sa- he says this. He says, when Paul tells those he is in fellowship with that he has them in his heart, he is expressing more than sentimental feeling. He is stating the commitment of his heart to give his life for his friends. His heart commitment wasn't just sentimentality. It was sacrificial love modeled after the example of Jesus Christ himself. His willingness to take on flesh and die in our place. And I'm going to show you one more. It's not just there. He says this to the second, in the Corinthians, second Corinthians. He tells this to them. Uh, and he's in a passage where he's talking about joy. He says, second Corinthians chapter seven, verse three. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He's saying that I am with you in death or with you in life. Your fate is my fate. There's nothing he wasn't willing to sacrifice for those whom he loved, for those whom he held in his heart. That's that's what he means by that when he says, I hold you in my heart. And actually, that's why back in Philippians, verse 8, that's why verse 8 sounds the way it does. He says in verse 8 that he's calling God to witness, not a set of facts, but the truthfulness of his emotions. And his emotions are that he, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's almost as though when you read this, it sounds like Paul is, he's used up his words. He doesn't know what else to say. So he's just, I, I just, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. He says the love that he has for them is the love of Christ. It's the affection of Christ. And this word is interesting, this word affection. It literally means entrails, bowels. He's saying, I yearn for you with the bowels of Christ. This is similar to what he's saying when he says he has them in his heart. He's saying that his affection for them comes from the most inward part of him. It's like saying it's a gut feeling. I can't help but to feel this way about you. It's a part of the core and essence of who I am. That's what he's saying. And Paul recognizes that that his life in Christ then brings all of his relationships into the sphere of Christ's love. His love for them is so strong, so foundational to the core of his being, that he views it actually as the love of Christ expressing itself through him with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why does he feel this way? From the middle of verse 7, we start with that word for. This is the reason for his love and the reason for his affection. And this is true of the Philippians and by extension all of us believers. Middle of verse 7, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul's now circling back and he is grounding his love in the same thing that he grounded his joy in, his common fellowship in Christ. Partakers actually comes from the same word as 
The same root word is partnership. He's talking about fellowship again. So just as he chose to root their fellowship in the gospel in verse 5, he's choosing to root their fellowship in grace in verse 7. You see, what bound them together was not a purpose statement, wasn't a, even a vision statement or a common cause or a common interest, but what bound them together in loving fellowship was God's love towards them. God's outpouring of grace in the form of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. That's what bound them together. Our union together as Christians is not something we create. It's not something we sustain. It's simply something we are. It's a part of our identity. Part of our identity is our union with Christ, which necessarily entails our union to each other. We don't have to come up with clever schemes for fellowship. It's a part of the very definition of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. You see, Paul is teaching us today that if we want to have genuine fellowship expressing itself in abounding love and joy, that we must first look to Jesus. He is what we have in common. He is the cornerstone upon which we all stand. He is the foundation for our relationships with one another. We have the same Savior, the same grace-induced Spirit, and the same Father who loves us. And look at at what Paul says about this grace in verse 7. He says, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is how grace manifested itself to Paul, was his imprisonment and his gospel proclamation. And what does he mean by that? How is being in prison an outpouring of grace? And how do the Philippians share in that? The answer actually comes just a few verses later, just beyond our section, but I want to read it to you in verses 12 through 14 of the same chapter. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, where he was imprisoned, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. More people are hearing of Jesus and being motivated by Paul's commitment to preach Christ. And that includes the Philippians. That's how they share with Paul. And that's how they are in fellowship with Paul in this imprisonment of his. You see, for Paul, the fellowship that they shared, the main thing they had in common was Christ. They could all work together to proclaim his message and his salvation and that he has died and raised from the dead and that he right now reigns at the right hand of God. And it's as they share in that, as that is their common bond, and they have this mutual call to give everything for Christ, that they are family, that they are united together in fellowship. And it is in that union in Christ that we actually find the freedom to love each other. See, Paul's affection wasn't his. It was the affection of Jesus. He couldn't love like that without him, and neither can we. When we know Christ and the free grace that he offers, 
We're free to love each other as Christ is calling us to. We love because he first loved us. And so rather than disliking things about each other's personalities, we actually have a gospel freedom to love each other due to the fact that we have the same love of Christ working through us. I remember one of the first times that, that I, I remember experiencing this in, in church, in the local church where I was a member. Um, we had moved to Louisville, Jesslyn and I. Um, there's, there's kind of two parts to this illustration. We had moved to, two examples. We had moved to Louisville. Uh, we were attending seminary there, Southern Seminary. And we had decided to pick a church. And because I was really excited about learning from this one particular professor, I decided that we would, let's go to the church where he pastors. Um, and we did. And you, I remember from the beginning sensing that, that loving people and that sharing the love of Christ for people was something that was evident in this man's life from the beginning, just in small things, that they really are small things, but they actually feel like a big thing when you're in it. The fact that he remembered Jesslyn and I's first and last name after the very first time we met him, which doesn't seem like a big idea, except for when you think about the fact that it was fall semester and there was like 100 new students showing up at his church. And he remembered us. But it really hit home uh, after we'd been, we'd been there for about, about six months or so, uh, Jessalyn and I had experienced uh, a miscarriage. It was our, it was our first miscarriage. Um, and it was, it was painful. And it was probably one of the more painful events of our marriage and, until our, our second. Um, but I remember feeling the love of Christ from people in our body, from people in our fellowship. Feeling the love that they wanted to show us, Christ's love that they wanted to show us. A small example, the pastor himself, not only did he call me on the phone right after it happened, um, and let me talk to him for like an hour, just asking him questions and praying for me and guiding me. But he met me after class and was praying for me and guiding me. He cared. He wanted to show me the affection of Christ. But it was multiple people in our church. And almost what was more astounding to us, and when we talk about this, this is something that just really weighs, weighs on our heart with how much love we were shown. Um, and we were shown love from our family who, who came up there and were there to be with us. But from our local church, we had peers who were also members of the church, and they were also seminary students. So that meant, like us, they had no money. And they showed us what it meant to experience the love that is possible through Christian fellowship. See, our miscarriage happened in February. So by that time, we had accumulated a lot of doctor's bills and a lot of hospital bills. Um, and we had a friend of ours. They had received their tax return check. It was the beginning of the year. They cashed it and brought the entire thing to us. And we knew what this meant for them. This was before any of us had children. We were, you know, working a part-time job, just getting through seminary. We knew what kind of sacrifice this was for them. They wanted to show us the affection of Christ Jesus. It was all the more painful knowing that before this had happened, Jessalyn and I had blown our tax return. I think, I think I got an iPod or something. But how amazing to know that the love of God and the provision of God doesn't depend on our perfection and our obedience but on his grace. And that's what makes the fellowship among believers so powerful. We have all experienced the grace of the gospel, and thus we are all united in Christ to each other. And we are free to love and demonstrate our affection for one another, both in word and in deed. I want us to see one more thing from this passage. We've seen that fellowship with each other produces this joyful thankfulness and that it produces this deep affection. But it also leads us to be faithfully praying for each other. Paul shows us this in the last few verses, verses 9 through 11. 
See, when we understand that it is Christ and his gospel that unites us in fellowship to one another, we see prayer as an indispensable component. The reason for this, as we're going to see fleshed out here, is that we are so thankful for those we love that we want to see them in Christ and grow in Christ and bring glory to Christ. We want to see the gospel shape the lives of others as much as we want to see it shape our life. And so we pray for each other. Look at verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul is praying for them. And this gives the Philippians both a glimpse into what Paul prays for them. And it kind of becomes a, an, an out, a way for him just to, to pour out his emotions. This is, I'm so full of these emotions towards you, I need to pray for you. And this is what I'm going to pray. And for us, it becomes a helpful guide of what we want to see in each other and what we want to pray for in each other. And there's, really, there's two components I want to show you from this. First, and, and central to Paul's concern, is that they would love. Just that he loves them, he wants them to love, and it says, abound in love more and more. With this phrase, more and more, it doesn't mean they aren't loving to begin with. It just means that it's something that we are never to be satisfied with. We will never reach the point where we can say, finally, I've loved enough. Only Christ has done that. But rather, this is something that by the power of the Spirit, we are to continually pursue and pray for each other to pursue. But what are they to love? What are they to love more and more? as Paul puts it. I think the point in this passage is that we continue to grow in our love for Christ and thus our love for each other. I think that's what Paul's saying. And not only is, do I get that from the fact that Paul has mentioned fellowship a couple times in this passage, so he's talking about the way we treat each other, but his prayer flows directly from his declaration of Christ-infused love for the Philippians. That's what's on his mind when he prays that they would love and that thus we would love more and more. It's as though he's saying, I love you, and so I want you to love too, more and more. And so the love here becomes a model that we have for each other when we pray for each other and how we treat each other. I've actually been convicted lately about love for one another and how that affects my prayer life. And I know that I still fall so short of of praying as Paul did and as praying as, as I feel I should. It's a good thing God is gracious. But One of the things that I want to work on personally is when people ask me to pray for them, that I pray for them. You know, it's it's very easy to say, yes, I will, and maybe you mean you will. Sometimes you forget, or maybe sometimes you remember and it's just kind of a quick thought. It's not something that you've really invested your heart in. And so when we say we're going to pray for someone, let's pray for them. Right then and there if we can. It may not always be possible, but I imagine it's possible a lot more than we think. It has been for me. I've seen this over the last few weeks as I've tried to put this into practice. It was for me this morning, actually. Um, Someone just offered to pray for me and did it right then and there. And I was like, wow, that's perfect. Ties right into my message. He didn't even need to hear this. But that's also why prayer doesn't end there. Love for one another must never be cut off from its source. We can say love each other, but we have to know where we get that love. And Paul's told us it's the affection of Christ. That's the source of our love for one another. When Paul prays that we would love each other more and more, he certainly means it as an outworking of our love for Christ. 
He tells us in chapter 3 that nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Because everything flows from that. Therefore, our love for each other springs from our love for Christ and his work to secure our salvation. That's why we read next in verse 9, after they're told to love more and more, that it's to be with knowledge and all discernment. He's pointing us to the way our love ought to increase. These two things are separated, yet, yet related ideas. You see, love is not something that happens without thinking about it. I know it's popular to view love as kind of this uncontrollable desire, but that's not what Paul positions it at here. However, nor is love some, some cold academic exercise. When Paul uses this word knowledge, he uses a word that means full knowledge at a spiritual level. He means knowledge of God. Paul's using this word to the convey knowing God. It only comes from our experience of him and our personal relationship with our Lord. And the word discernment, it's actually closely connected to it. It means the discernment that comes from knowing God. It's the will of God which is revealed in the word of God. The truth then that we pull from this and what Paul's praying here is that our love would continually increase through a continual deepening of our knowledge of God and his word. And the same is true for us as it was for the Philippians. If we want to love more, it's not something that we have the ability to just make happen, but it's something that we are dependent on the grace of God for. So yes, strive to love one another. But unless we are continually looking to Christ and the love he has shown us, we won't be able to do it. So what a wonderful prayer this is. And Paul, Paul loves them. And his prayer is that all of us in Christ would love precisely because we are in Christ. There's one more thing that he says here in this prayer. He's praying not only that they would love by knowing God, but he's praying for their growth in Christ, their holiness. Topics is a little out of popularity, I feel like sometimes, where we find it difficult to understand the call for holiness in our lives with the offer of free grace in Christ. It's hard for us to see how those things reconcile, but for Paul, there doesn't seem to be any tension. He makes it clear that Christ is our greatest treasure and that everything we've learned so far in this passage is rooted in the gospel. And yet still, he can talk about how the importance of holiness flows from that truth of the gospel and flows from the grace we have received in the gospel. And when he does this, he uses three phrases here in verse 10. He says, so that, so here's your reasoning for growing in love by knowing God. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The reason we are to grow in love through knowing Christ is that we might live lives pleasing to God. Not to gain his love. We have that freely and we'll never lose it. But to live lives that are an outworking of the grace he's shown us in Christ. He says, approving what is excellent and to be pure and to be blameless. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's praying for the Philippians. You see, taken together, these phrases mean that we pray for each other's growth in Christ. That our fellow brothers and sisters would make, make wise choices that flow from lives living in the love of Jesus. This is what Pastor Jeff has been teaching us in Proverbs. The way we live flows from who Christ is. When we love each other, we want to see each other not only know Christ, 
but we want to see each other grow in Christ. It means that our desire for each other is that we stand before Christ workers approved. Not because we're perfect, not because we've earned our salvation. That'll never happen. But because when we have experienced the love of Christ, then we seek to love in return, both God and others, both those we are in fellowship with. We are following the example of Christ and living, and this is important, living out an overflow of his righteousness. And that's actually the next thing we see here, the beginning of verse 11. Our lives of holiness, discernment, obedience, purity, they're not things that we make happen. They're not natural to us, but rather they must come, verse 11, from the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness we strive for, the holiness we see here prayed for, is not something we will ever attain on our own. To drive after these things in our own power will prove nothing but fruitless. But they are only possible in the power of Christ, and they only come from the work of Christ, and they are only reality for those united to Christ. Do you see in that what happened here? Even in our exhortations to be holy and to pray for each other to love and be holy, Christ still gets the glory. Paul ends with the phrase in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. This is because in all of this, we bring glory to God. When we love each other well, God is glorified. When we grow in Christ and holiness, God is glorified. Both because it is a great testimony to the gospel And because any progress in our life is ultimately a working of the grace of God in our lives and through us. And so as we go, let's look to Christ and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. Let's let the gospel of grace remind us of who we are in Christ and who we are together in Christ. And then thankfulness and joy and love and affection and prayer, these things won't be burdensome for us but rather there will be something that comes from the deepest part of who we are as children of God. Let's pray. If you're serving communion, go ahead and make your way to the front. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for how gracious you are to us. We thank you that You have not left us on our own in this world, but that you have provided a means for our salvation and a means for us to live lives pleasing to you and to bring glory to your name. Father, I pray that we would seek to to recognize our deep fellowship with one another, that we would seek to, to be thankful for each other and to love each other and to pray for one another, knowing that this is what life in the body of Christ looks like. It's your love working through us. So, Father, I pray that these things would be true of us and that you would help guide us and that you would continually show us your love that we might show others your love in turn. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.